welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church of Taylorville, Illinois. I hope this podcast stirs your desire for the things of God, and we hope that your faith in Christ will grow like never before. Now let's get into the podcast. Hey, don't be seated just yet. I want you to go to somebody who does not have a jersey on, on like you do, and I want you to give them a high five and say, it's good to see you this morning. And make sure you mean it. Here you go. Yeah, I was. Beautiful city, terrible teams. Um, I had to, Daniel. You know that. Hey, so good to be here today, and we're starting a brand new series called Together, and what a day to do it, right? You look around, it's like all of us, we root for different teams, we're about different things, but yet those of us who are in Christ and who are really connected to the church, we are all part of Team Jesus, amen? amen. And that's why we're here, that's why we gather. So at the end of today, if you have not had an opportunity to take a picture, uh, take a picture back at the photo booth. Pick somebody who doesn't root for the same team as you, post that on your social media, and be kind and do that. So, or not, just root for your own team, you know, whatever, but I'm just saying it's there and it looks amazing, so seize that moment. Also, there's another moment that maybe some of you would like to seize that doesn't have to do with the Sears or what I'm about to preach. However, um, so today we are in need of a couple people to help us move some of our friends are actually moving out of state. We've already done all the heavy lifting. They just need to empty their garage, and we're going to meet at their house at 1 o'clock. So, uh, Barry and Lola, where are you, Barry and Lola? Raise your hand. That's who's leaving. We're sad about that, but I know that God has a plan for you in Arkansas, and now we have a place to go. So, yeah, that's good. Hey, they're going there because the Lord's sending them there. So, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's our loss, but we know you're doing good work there, and and serving like you do. So they have just a few things left to be uh, put into a trailer from, uh, from their garage, and we would love to have some help with that. I'm not going to give you the address right now because who knows who's going to hear this. So talk to me after the service. If you don't know where Barry and Lola live, I'll give you the address. Love to see you at 1 o'clock. Eat lunch, get powered up, fueled up, and let's go help them get that trailer packed and send them on their way. And besides that, we've already done all the heavy lifting. So come on, help us. Uh, we moved their house out this week, so we got that done, and my back healed eventually. So, uh, so we're in a series, and we're going through Ephesians, and what we've said really the tagline, they're really the, uh, if I were to incorporate three big ideas throughout all of Ephesians, it's that we're blessed, that we're together, and that we're living victoriously. So I want you to say that with me. Say it with some confidence, like you're rooting for your team. I want you to say, we're blessed together and living victoriously. Ready? One, two, three. We are blessed together and living victoriously. You said that like you believe it. I like it. So now we're, we're transitioning into a different portion of Ephesians, but the, the themes are, are still all interconnected, but yet we kind of get into this part in in Ephesians 4, where Paul really starts talking about being together, what that means about us being together, what that implies about us, and also what it is that God would have for us because we're together. Speaking of together, there's an interesting thing. Of course, you see this visual here, and it's a jar of marbles. But the cool thing about these marbles, it's really kind of a picture of us. 
You see, we are, we're similar, but yet we're different. And I'm having a hard time getting these out of here. So um, we're similar. I mean, they're all marbles, but they're all, now look at this. All right, Beth, you're a friend. I mean, you're a Cub fan. We're still friends, right? Part of the family of God. They're all different, right? All right. Another Cub fan, right? Okay. Uh, I didn't go to a White Sox fan, so I'm just saying. Um, there are few. I know we have some. I love you in Jesus' name. So, um, but like we're like these marbles. Some are, some are large. Some are small. They're all different, but yet they're, they're marbles. All of us, we have some similarity. It doesn't even matter really what your family background is. We all share this thing called humanity. We're all made in the image of God. We all have intrinsic value and worth. Your life is valuable. It doesn't matter how old you are, uh, the, the, the born or the unborn, there's value in life because God says that there is and because God put that in you and in me. Here's the rub. You see, there are some things that, that are similar, but yet oftentimes, and we see this so, so prevalent in our life, the differences are actually the things that tears us apart. Is it not? Look what's going on in the world. It's not our similarities. It's not our humanity that we share. It's picking apart one another. This is happening in, in the church, outside the church, in every, every sphere of our culture, picking people apart because they're not like us. And the reality is, you're the only you. You're the only you. There's no one else like you. Sure, you may have a doppelganger who lives in Australia, but you are the only you. You're the only one who shares your unique DNA code. And God made you with value and worth. This whole series, what we're going to be transitioning into is how do we take uh, the, the, the sameness that we share and how can we actually tread through and walk through those differences without it tearing us apart, instead being united. Because this is what God intends for those of us who are in the church, that our differences wouldn't separate us from our sameness. All of us made in the image of God, and those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus, we uphold some things in our life because God has put it in us. You see, the Bible promotes unity, not uniformity. The Bible promotes unity. Unity is an interesting thing because unity is intrinsic. It comes from the inside where uniformity, somebody telling you how to act or telling you how to live, that, that uniformity comes from the outside. The Bible... God, the Holy Spirit, when someone gives their life to Jesus, there's an intrinsic work inside of them that flows out of them. And that spirit of unity is not something you create. It's something that the Spirit of God creates in you. And just as there's unity in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's unity within the body of Christ. So the Bible promotes, promotes unity, not uniformity. Here's the rub. Just because somebody espouses unity and we want unity and we crave unity doesn't mean they're always going to have it. This I know to be true, and this has gotten a lot of people in trouble. Rivals and rebels are exposed when a church has unity. If you're a rival or you're a rebel, you will be exposed when the church has unity. You will be. You, will, you should feel uncomfortable if you're the rebel in the crowd or if, if there's a sense of rebellion inside of you. You should feel exposed in those times. You should. Because if the church is unified, it's not to squeeze you out. It's that you humble yourself to squeeze yourself in. 
So that, that exposure that you feel could be God speaking to you saying, whoa, why, do I, why is it that I, I really can't have friends? Why is it that I have to live my life as a rival? Why is it that I have to live my life in rebellion? Why is it that I pit myself against everyone else instead of naturally aligning myself with other people? If that is the, 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 the mode of your heart, that will be exposed when a church has unity. And we are a church that craves unity. We crave it. So what does this mean for us? That means that a couple things has to be true of us. If this is indeed what we're going to be after, we have to learn and we have to live God's word. We need to learn it. We need to know it. We need to be studiers of it. We need to be consuming it. We need to consider our intake of the Bible just as important as our intake of food, perhaps even more important. But we need to be taking that in and not just taking in little morsels that feel good to us, but we need to, we need to allow God's word and the Holy Spirit to impact in, in such a way that even if we get in front of an uncomfortable truth, that we don't turn away from it and say, well, God, I don't understand. If indeed you don't understand. See, oftentimes what I found is in the church, what happens is we, we get into an uncomfortable truth and we write it off. It's like, oh, that's too deep for me. No, it's not too deep for you. You're just not willing to go underneath that authority. But we cover it with that's too deep for me. I don't understand or I just, I don't know. I'm just not there yet. I'll get there eventually. No, 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 brother and sister, you're there if you have the Holy Spirit within you. Our job is when we get into an uncomfortable truth is to surrender ourselves, to submit ourselves to whatever that truth is, even if it's uncomfortable. Even if it requires something of us, even if it requires a drastic change to our lifestyle, the, the point of the Bible is not for the Bible to conform to us. The point of the Bible is for us to conform to it. So we have to learn and live God's word. In Ephesians 4, we're going to look at the first 16 verses, and I would love to be able to spend more time on this, but I simply can't. So what, what I have is the, really four different standards of Christian unity that I'll draw out with some, some application and supporting verses along the way. Ephesians 4 is where we are now, starting in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then... You will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown there or here and there by every wind of teaching or by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. The first standard of Christian unity is this. Unity depends on the commitment to godly character and impartial conduct. It depends on the commitment to godly character. God working in and through you. This isn't a self-help effort. It will blow up in your face. You cannot do this on your own. This has to be done when yielded to the Spirit of God. For it to be true of you and I... It depends on a commitment to godly character, not committing to what it is that we want, but committing to what it is that God says, and also aligning our lives to that, and also impartial conduct. I love the, 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 the way that this bears out in verse 2. You see, there's, there's one word, there's so many words here that trouble me, but there's one word that really troubles me in verse 2. Can you guess what it is? Completely. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Like if Paul would have written, be partially humble, and when it's convenient, be gentle. Like it would be so much easier, wouldn't it? Be like, I just, I'm just choosing not to be humble today. I'm, I'm choosing me. And, uh, you know, but it's not. Instead, the standard is, is right in front of us when he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This idea of humility is talked about a lot, but really what he's saying is don't come into church community into church community with your own agenda. You're not in a church to get what you want. We're in church so that God gets the glory for what he wants. So the idea of, of humility is is Christ first, others second. And then self last. I'm not saying that, that you don't matter, and I'm not saying that you just need to be a doormat for everybody else. That's not what he's saying here. Again, you have intrinsic worth and value. You're not a doormat for anyone. However, this needs to be the posture of our heart. Because if you and I are actually going to be people who are unified as a church, and if we're going to be on mission for Jesus, and if we're going to be inviting our friends into this place, we have to be different than what they see in the media around them. But we should be different than what they see in the media around them. This should be, and every, every local church should be the most refreshing place to walk in on planet Earth. Whether it's in central Illinois, or it's in Istanbul, Turkey, or if it's in uh, Sydney, Australia, or London, England, or Quebec, Canada. Every local church should be the most refreshing place that somebody could, that they, they walk into where they just feel at home because we're so welcoming to invite them in. But if we're going to embrace this truth, it, it depends on a commitment to godly character and impartial conduct. Again, not getting what we want, not having pet projects, not pushing our agenda, but aligning ourselves always with God's agenda. And the beauty is we don't have to wonder what God's agenda is. It's right here. It's timeless. It's true. This is God's agenda for you and for I. You know, I was thinking of a different way of applying this, and 
and, and even stretching outside the church walls. And I, I thought about this this morning when I was looking over this particular message. And here's a way that I think that you can gauge your humility because, you know, it's, it's one of those things. If you say, oh, I'm humble, then you're actually, you're like, you kind of prove yourself. You feel like, oh, I'm not really being humble if I say that I'm being humble. So rather than to, to do that, um, I thought of this. Do you celebrate other people's successes? Are you willing to celebrate other people's successes? Are you willing to, to allow them to, to rise and to show off and give them some shine because they're succeeding? Or are you the type of person who sees somebody else succeed and yet you want to tear down the scaffolding of success that they have and at the same time diminishing them to build up another scaffolding for yourself to make you look better? Do you celebrate other people's success? Do you celebrate a good idea even when it's not your idea? You know, to face oneself is really the most humiliating thing in the world. It really is. But that's when we meet God. A couple of case studies for this would be in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And you see the exact situation that David, not that he found himself in, but you see both of these are confessions after his sin with Bathsheba. And now he's, he's confronting himself and God is, is, is allowing him to see himself. And now it's just etched out in the Holy Scriptures. In Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, Psalm 32 is shorter than 51, I believe. So if you want to start there and gain some confidence and then go into 51. But it's like you, you, you look at these and you see really what's going on inside of David. And you know that he is really stricken by what he's done. And a sense of humiliation, not in a, in a way that's like that, that, he, that he denies his self-worth and he denies his value, but it's a matter of humiliation like, I did this and other people suffered because of me. I did this and I caused an innocent man to die. I did this and disrupted, disrupted a family. I did this and, I, and, and David, you see the disruption that he, is, that he has created with his heavenly father. But make no mistake, to face oneself is the most humiliating thing you can do. It really is. Because you're confronted with who you really are. But church, the amazing thing is this. That's where you meet God. That's where you have a real encounter with God. That's when you're really laid bare before God. Some of the most pure moments is when God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, speaks to an individual, whether it's in a church service or, or just praying at home or just reading the Bible, and God causes you to weep about what you've done. That is a holy and special moment. That is not one you should be embarrassed about. That's one you should celebrate because that is evidence of God's activity in your life. However, if you've never had these moments or if these moments are really rare to you where you don't even hear the voice of God anymore, you've never heard the voice of God, you are actually in a very dangerous place and you may not even know it, friends. Because if you're not even hearing from the voice of God or you can't even remember the last time you came forward to pray about someone else or pray about something that's going on in your life, you are in a very, very desperate, desperate place. But when, when you own what you've done and you repent of what you've done, you meet God there. And that's a beautiful and redeeming thing. 
The next word that Paul uses this, is this word gentleness. And a way to apply this is, is gentleness is resisting the temptation to exert personal rights or personal agendas at the expense of God, other people, or the church. We've all been part of church communities where the person who has the, the boldest, ungoverned personality runs roughshod over a meeting. Or they run roughshod over a group. Or they run roughshod over a relationship. We've been around these people. I've been that person. I know I've been that person. My, my personality has an acquired taste, I understand. And, and, and if you think that I'm intense now, you should have seen me five years ago. And it wasn't COVID. I said five years ago, before COVID. We all got intense during that. But I used to be very intense. So much so that I was, I was ungoverned and people around me had... I used to bristle against a lot of people and I know they bristled against me and I know a lot of it was my fault. Because I hadn't embraced gentleness as to what it means. You see, gentleness means in, in one way... Sure, you may know a way to do it, but it's not the only way to do it. Sure, you, you have an opinion. We all have opinions. But just because you have the strongest personality doesn't mean that your opinion needs to trump everybody else's opinion. And it doesn't mean that your opinion needs to trump their feelings. You see, gentleness is something that we take on. It's resisting that temptation to assert personal rights. Well, I've been in this church for 40 years where I'm a deacon, I'm the pastor, I've been here, I'm this person, I make this much money. You don't know how much money I've done. I was a part of this movement. I've made sure that I did this. No, 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 no. Did you do it for you or did you do it for God? Because if you did it for God, you can't take the credit. But if you did it for God, God gets the glory. And if you're going to maintain the Holy Spirit and a spirit of gentleness... It's taking aside, putting that personal right of what you've done instead saying, God, no, you did this. And again, the idea of a personal agenda of not just getting what you want, but to see to it that God gets what he desires. We do that at the expense of other people. Patience as a way to define that with that Greek word, patience, because it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It means long-suffering towards aggravating people. It means long-suffering towards aggravating people. That means if we're going to have unity in the church, and if we're going to have impartial conduct, it's just because your personality doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily jive with my personality. That means if, if I'm going to have patience and long-suffering towards you, just because our personalities aren't aligned doesn't mean that I can't be your friend. And it also means just because our personalities are not aligned, that doesn't mean that we can't be in a group together. And just because our personalities are not aligned or we see the world a different way, I'm an Enneagram 1. That means something to some of you. I'm, a, I'm an ENTJ, and I'm like, I like waver back and forth. But the J part is judgmental. And, and being an Enneagram 1 and a personality, kind of the spectrum of my personality, is, again, I can be intense. And if there's something that's wrong in the church, or if there's something wrong in your house, if there's something wrong in your life, if there's something wrong in my life, I'm the person who's going to see it. And, and I, when I was less mature than I am right now, I thought it was my job to point all those things out to you. And I thought I was doing you a favor, but I wasn't doing you a favor. I was just dealing with the agitation inside of me. 
You see, that's what happens when we're impatient. Oftentimes, the reason why we project things onto other people is because we're actually, it, we're just, just dispelling something that's actually inside of us. It isn't even about the person, it's about us. Patience is long-suffering towards aggravating people. It means that if we're going to have unity, I realize you're not going to see the world the same way as me. Your experiences are different than me. Praise God that you're different than me. And yet I want you in my life even if I don't completely understand you or understand where you're coming from. But I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to be long-suffering for the sake of unity in the gospel. I love how the Apostle Paul, he also says a common word uh, at the end of verse 2. He says, bearing with one another in love. So the idea of in love is the word agape. And scripturally, there's a parallel passage with this in Colossians 3.14. And it says, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. I love the way that he put that. So love is actually the, the binder of all these things. There's four different types of love that you'd see in the New Testament. There's eros, which is, is sexual or passionate love. There's uh, philia or it, Philadelphia. It's like brotherly love. It's just like friendship love, kind of that kindred love. There's uh, the, the Greek word storge, and it's more like a, a parental love to a child and the child's love to the parents. And then the word that's used here and also in Colossians 3 is the word agape. And that's that others-centered love. It's that selfless love. It's that unconditional love. It's the unconditional love that God has already shown. When, when Jesus died on the cross, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever, and I'm one of the whosoever. And if you've given your life to Jesus, you are too. But that God gave and that Jesus gave his life. He was selfless. It was, it was the perfect portrayal of agape love. And agape love is too what's supposed to be setting us apart. I love the, the way that one uh, theologian put it. He said that love is the circulatory system of the body. And because I'm weird, I, I wondered about the circulatory system of the body because I read this quote. And did you know, some of you know these random facts, by the way. I know somebody in here does. I'm not the only one. That in, in the adult human body, there's 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. 60,000 miles. That's enough to go around the earth twice. And of course, the circulatory system, circulating blood everywhere in and out of the heart, aorta, ventricles doing their thing, all four chambers doing their thing, valves opening and closing when they're doing their thing like they're supposed to, blood's just flowing through your body. And I love the way the theologian put it, he says, love is the circulatory system of your body. It should be the thing that defines you, that's, that's inside you, that others notice in you. The second standard of Christian unity is this, Unity arises from the unity of our God. Notice what it says in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Another translation says, be eager to maintain the unity of the body. 
And also it continues, there is one body and one spirit. Verse 4, this is where I'm reading from. Just as you were called to one hope, who were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. You see, if we're to live our lives in alignment with what God wants, and if we're going to, if we're going to be missional Christians, we have to be known by our love, but also we have to have uh, we have to be known by the peace that we have because maintaining peace and not neglecting peace is also what's going to keep us unified. So that other people would, would notice our lives and recognize God's work. Notice what it says in this passage. Verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one body because there's only one spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells each believer, ignites change in each believer, and inspires us and actually gives us the ability to do the work that we're inspired to do. Second thing that's worth noting is that there's one hope. In church, the world needs hope, does it not? There's one hope. And it's found in this amazing God-man. His name was Jesus Christ. And the way that you can ascertain that hope is not through some educational way or giving to the church or simply attending church. But it's when you make a personal decision where you submit to Jesus, acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross to take away your sins. You turn away from your old sinful life. You cry out to Him and you ask Him to make you new. Acknowledging that he is the God-man, that he resurrected, proving that he was God in the flesh. That's the way that we have the hope of Christ. And that's through faith. Notice the the word there in verse 5, through one faith and one baptism. It's interesting. It says one baptism. You see, there's he's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens upon conversion. When somebody gives their life to Jesus... I personally, I know some of, uh, some of my brothers and sisters don't necessarily agree with this theological point that I'm about to make. Some people believe that there's like a second filling of the Holy Spirit that comes like later and later and later, and you can be filled again and again and again. We can agree to disagree on that. I believe that there's one filling that you receive the Holy Spirit upon conversion, that you have exactly what you need upon conversion. We can quench the Spirit. We can do that. We'll talk, we're going to talk about that later. But, but my theological conviction is that there's one baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that Paul would use in this language to bring us all together. But also there's a, a baptism that happens, and it started in, in the early church, and it's been continuing now for thousands of years. When somebody gets baptized, it's a public way of acknowledging their personal faith. And in ancient times, there were people, and it's, it's similar, we follow a similar model, that people are actually allowed into the church, officially into the church, only after they've been baptized. Because baptism was a public way of letting people know about the inward belief in God. If you've not been baptized, I would recommend that, that you do get baptized, that you follow through with believer's baptism. And doing so is, is a great time of celebration. We love to baptize. We love to see what God's doing and to celebrate that with you. Verse 6, notice it says, There's one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. There's only one Christian family. 
we're just part. If every Christian for all times is part of the family of God, a thousand years ago, and if the Lord tarries in another thousand years, if there's humans still here on earth, we'll all be part of the family of God together. Baptists don't have this this, uh, market cornered. We're not the only ones going to heaven. It's just, just true. I would apologize, but I'm not because it's true, you know. There's a lot of people going to heaven. Maybe you'd be surprised when you get there as to see who all gets in. <clears throat> Next standard of Christian unity, number three, is this. Unity is reinforced by the diversity of our gifts. There's a kind of a confusing thing that I'm not going to dig too deeply in, but it's uh, in verse 7 through 10, there's some, some reading there that you have to go through. And I would just say that it, uh, that, that passage connects... Uh, from the Old Testament in Psalm 68, verse 10, where it says, He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. I love the way that the one commentarian put it. He said, when Jesus ascended to heaven, He was like a general returning from battle. Dividing the plunder with His people. So it talks about this dissension of Jesus and this ascension of Jesus, Him ascending back to heaven. Then when he went to heaven, he went as, uh, in the way this was described, as a general returning from battle. And yet he's, he's giving the plunder to his people. That, of course, being us. There's a parallel passage that I think it's worth noting in uh, Philippians 2. I'm going to go there quickly. You don't have time to flip there. But in verse 5, Philippians 2, it says this. Your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very uh, nature of a servant, being made in in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. You see, here's the descension of Jesus to earth, in heaven, coming to earth in the the form and likeness of, of a man, a human like us. And notice what it says next. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, his ascension, uh, and gave him the name that is above every name, that is the name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verse 7, there's a mention here. We're going to dig a little deeper into this. It says, But to each one of us, grace has been uh, has given as Christ apportioned it. This is talking about spiritual gifts. I'm going to talk about spiritual gifts in the way that this passage defines, but I want you to know this. If you're curious about spiritual gifts, uh, I've, I've printed some of these sheets off, and they're on the back wall under a, a little piece of paper that says spiritual gifts. And this lines out, I don't believe they're all the spiritual gifts. Because there are three different lists of spiritual gifts mentioned in the Bible, but they're not all the same, which leads me to think that there may be actually more spiritual gifts that are not all lined out. However, uh, there, this is a really helpful way, that was a helpful way for me to understand spiritual gifts and what they are, which ones are essential, which ones are not essential in the same way uh, that the ones are essential, that being faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is what? Love. Thank you. Um, you know your Bible too. Rocking on. So I, I've printed some of these off, and again, they're in the foyer on the back wall. If you want to know more about spiritual gifts, that way to, to make some things plain, and that's directly from 
the study Bible that I'm currently using. So this idea, John Stott said, the saving grace is the grace which saves sinners, and it's given to all who believe. But this is uh, his adaptation from verse 7. He says, but what might be termed service grace is the grace which equips, every, or which equips God's people to serve. What's being mentioned at the beginning of verse 7 is that there are these grace gifts, these charis gifts, that every follower of Jesus has received. They have received them not, for, not to prop themselves up or not to, to spout off their own gifts or not to use their gifts to elevate themselves, but instead to use the gifts that God has given to elevate others. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts, is to equip the whole body. Uh, also, the Apostle Paul, in another passage, he said this about spiritual gifts, 1 uh, Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. There are different kinds of gifts, he says, but the same spirit. There's different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Talking about how we're unified and God holds us together and keeping us unified by the spirit of God that is at work within us. Verse 11 and 12, we're going to spend a couple moments on this. From Ephesians 4, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. This is an important thing. I've actually been anxious to talk about this and eager to talk about this for quite some time. The first thing that he lists out is the idea of apostles. When you hear apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors or shepherds or teachers... I don't want you to think that somebody is now going to have a title that is apostle whatever, or prophet whatever, or evangelist John, or that's, that is not, I believe, what is, is the main crux of this passage. Instead, what I think uh, that the Holy Spirit was conveying through Paul and to us is this, not to give titles, but saying that everyone who's in Christ has a gift within their person that aligns with either apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd or pastor, or teacher. My particular way uh, of, of my particular way of gifting is apostle. To be apostolic, again, I'm not, I'm not advocating for, well, that's Apostle Chad, sorry. Um, the, the Apostle Paul was the last apostle. That's the way that... that General Orthodox Christians, they view it in that way, that, that the, uh, there are those who are apostolic. In other words, they have the gift of, of, of the apostolic duty or responsibility, but not the title. Again, that's uh, something that some, maybe some of us may disagree on. We can still be friends. So if you're more apostolic, you're more pioneering. This is somebody who's a church planner. This is somebody who... who, who goes out and maybe in the secular world, they're an entrepreneur. They're starting new initiatives. They start things, start things, start things. They don't necessarily see them through, but they start things over and over and over. And if, you're, if that's you, maybe you align more on the apostolic side. That's kind of the way that, that I experience the world and other people experience the world through me. It's like start things, like see things. Oh, my goodness, let's do that, let's do that, let's do that. We need one another. The, the people who are apostolic... And who are called to be leaders, they, they tend to see the big picture. 
And they can, they can vision cast and, and they can show God's plan for the future. They tend to have that natural, supernatural knack. A prophet is someone who can speak the word, but it's the word that's already revealed and sealed. It's not a new revelation. It's not a, a new word like, oh, God said something to any Anytime somebody who says, I've got a word from God, I automatically don't say, oh, my goodness, give it to me. Instead, they say, I have a word from God. And mentally, I'm saying, okay, give it to me, but I'm going to filter everything you say through this book. Not to discredit what the person's saying to me, because I've had people who've actually given, who've actually given me words. They were incredibly helpful, and I received them. But I receive any time, whether it's me preaching or somebody else preaching or in a, in a life group or a different setting, when somebody comes up and, and they are standing in the position of thus saith the Lord, make sure that what they're saying is in alignment with what the Lord has already said. But people who are prophetic in that way, they definitely have a place in the world. They can speak the word of God with boldness and clarity. They're the people who just seem to get it and they just see the Bible in a different light than a lot of other people. They often can discern the voice of God in a unique way, in a unique way that stands out from some other people. Again, all of that needs to be filtered through the word. If I were to, to summarize into, into two words, somebody who has a prophetic gift, I would say it's revelation and insight. It's revelation and insight. The next is the evangelist. We're all called to evangelize. Everyone who's in Christ, we're all to be missional Christians. We've all received the, the, the great commandment, right? We have. And the great commission. Love God, love people, reach lost souls. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's all of us. What Paul's talking about here is a certain type of people who have a, a unique sense in brokenness for people. They tend to be the person in the room who advocates for the person that everybody else seems to dismiss. They're the person who goes in the room where they have a deep concern with that person's soul, where they, they're willing to wade through difficult times, and they don't dismiss hurting or wounded people. Instead, they just they want them around them with a sense of care, and, and they just offer themselves just as, in just the kindness of Jesus. These type of people, because they, they, they seem to be around a lot of broken people, they naturally can tell the gospel. They, they become the, the um, they're excited, and they're very easily excitable, and other people get saved from their excitement and their willingness and burden to share the gospel. Pastors. This is somebody, again, not a title. The, the title pastor, I could take you to other parts of the scriptures that actually verify the position of pastor or elder or deacon. I, I could take you into those places. This is actually something that, that is in alignment with the rest of scripture to, a, to adhere a title. But some of you, ladies and gentlemen, are very pastoral. It doesn't mean you need a title, but it means that you need to, to use that special bit of care and nurturing ability that God's put in you. Your ability to give guidance and, and protection for members uh, of the church and friends, even outside the church. Somebody's pastoral, they're willing to just sit in those uncomfortable moments where there's, there's grief, whether it's emotional or relational or spiritual grief, and you're just willing to sit there in those difficult places. 
And you're not turned away or you don't turn, you don't turn off from those moments. Instead, you sit in those moments. You're operating in a, in a very pastoral sense. Again, men and women. But in that pastoral sense, there's also this, this awareness of the Bible to, to comfort with the Bible and not just to comfort with opinion. Not always necessarily knowing what to say, but even when you don't know what to say, you're willing to sit with the person long enough to allow God to speak. And teachers, teachers have a deep knowledge and wisdom of the Word of God. To, to use other terminology uh, from another part of the Bible, uh, I believe in Thessalonians, where there was this group of people who were, uh, they were Bereans, and they were known, as, if they were the Bereans, they were the learned people, they were the studiers. They were the people that when the word of God was being preached, they were, they were curious, and they would sit in it to make sure that what the person, when they got up to say, thus saith the Lord, that it was actually God's word that they were seeing, or they were speaking about. Again, men and women operate in all of these spheres. And yet, teachers have this deep knowledge. And they use that knowledge to equip and empower saints to do the work of the ministry. This, this wording here is, it says, fully equipped. Which is interesting because that's the same word that, that would be used in a surgery of setting two broken bones. If somebody was fully equipped, it's this idea of bringing things together. In, 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 the, Old excuse me, in the New Testament of, of mending nets, it would also be talked about how like mending nets, putting things together in, a, in the political space. It would be two different uh, political alignments coming together under agreement. The last... Standard of Christian unity is unity takes spiritual maturity. Unity takes spiritual maturity. Verse 14 through 16 says this. Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. When my kids were really young, I did the dad thing all the time. One of the things I did being the, doing the dad thing is I would tell my kids, and I started really young. That way they wouldn't know any better maybe a sense of brainwashing, but I, I would start with my kids and, and I would tell them we'd be wrestling in the living room and, and I would say, hey, don't mess with your dad. I took two weeks of Chuck Norris karate training. And, and I actually did and I learned nothing. Um, but they didn't know that. They may still not know that. So, I mean, they're adults and stuff. They're probably not going to listen. So we'll just keep that between us. But it, so I kept that story alive, and of course, all the, the Chuck Norris jokes came around, you know. Um, you know, one of them being like, when Chuck Norris cuts an onion, the onion cries, you know, stuff like that. When Chuck Norris does a push-up, he doesn't, he doesn't go up, he actually pushes the world down. That's another one. 
Or when Chuck Norris, he, he once played rock, paper, scissors with himself and he beat his own reflection. So I say these things and kind of build it up. There's this idea that Chuck Norris is this extreme black belt in karate and multiple uh, different martial arts. And what I know from my, my weak experience doing karate, learning karate, learning nothing, is there's, there's degrees of people who have expertise in, in karate. There are the white belts, which I was almost qualified to be one. And then there are people in between, and then there's black belts. You know, at no time did, did, did the white belts in the room go to the black belts to tell them what to do. The white belts were the white belts. They were, the, they were there to learn. They wanted to be there. But they didn't go in and be like, you know what, I don't want to wear the robe today. I'm not wearing the gi. not doing it. You know what? I just don't look good in white. I need a different belt. They're a white belt. They didn't do that. Likewise, the black belts, they didn't go through and, and they didn't just dominate the white belts. They could have done that every single time. They could have, but they didn't. Instead, the black belts, they knew that they had an expertise that they actually wanted that expertise then to filter down all the way to the white belts so that maybe that white belt would one day be a black belt and maybe that they would actually replace them. It's the same spirit that needs to be lived out in our church. Unity takes spiritual maturity, but, but those of us who aren't quite mature enough, they're the white belts. And you're welcome to be here and there are those of us who are more black belts and they're further along and they're more spiritually mature and I want you to know that we're holding a place for you if you feel like a white belt we're holding a place for you you're welcome here you see that's what maturity requires of us and if we're going to be people who are unified under the banner of Christ and if we're going to be missional Christians like God wants us to if we're going to be the people who actually embody what we said together, that we're blessed together and living victoriously, we have to be unified. Would you stand? How did God speak to you today? He spoke to me. How did he speak to you? Are they one of these things that you're struggling with? Is there something that you need to turn away from? Have you been saved for a while, but yet you've never been baptized and you've just drug your feet and now today God spoke to you and said, oh, I need to be baptized. If that's you, I would love to talk to you. In a couple of weeks, we're gonna baptize. I believe it's on the first. I would love for you to be the first in the tank. I would love to celebrate your private faith going public. But I don't know what it is that God's doing. Maybe you're just a white belt. Maybe you're a black belt. Maybe you don't wear a belt. How's God speaking? Be obedient. Be obedient.